Chapter One of Household Puzzles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Household Puzzles by Pansy. Chapter One Split Things. Ermina Randolph drummed listlessly yet gloomily on the window pane. She was watching the snow as it came down in wandering flakes. Spitting snow, Maria called it. Maria was in the kitchen making cookies. They mostly used cookies in the Randolph family in preference to other kinds of cake. Not that they preferred them either, but they wore better. You could split them thinner, Maria said, and work in plenty of flour, and flour costs less than butter and eggs. This was the genius of the Randolph family, at least it was the necessity, to split things thin and wear them as long as possible. Helen came in from the white world outside, bringing flakes of snow on her cloak and sodden lumps of it on her rubbers. One rubber leaks, was her announcement. One foot is as wet as water. I do wish I had a new pair. Of feet? queried Ermina, turning from the outside snow. Now I should like a new pair of almost anything conceivable except feet. I am very well satisfied with the ones I have. A glance at her trim, well-shapen foot would not have led you to feel surprise at this conclusion. Why don't you have a better fire? was Helen's only answer to this sentence. Coal is dear, Ermina said with a shrug of her shapely shoulders. "'What isn't?' Helen answered, and there was a little spice of tartness in her voice. "'I'm not going to freeze to death to accommodate the price of coal.' Then she put forth her wet foot and slipped back the underslide with decision. The dingy leaden mass of coal instantly glowed at the change, and the air seemed to feel warmer. Helen dropped her bundles on an empty chair, herself into another, and sighed forlornly as she held up both hands to view her finger-ends gaping from each separate glove finger. "'Isn't that an elegant pair of gloves for one's best to wear in making morning calls?' she said with quiet sarcasm. "'Especially when you have the baker and the butcher and the other elite of the town to call on,' Ermina answered in the same tone. What arrangement did you make about bills, Helen? Don't ask me, said Helen in a tone of disgust. For pity's sake, let me forget for five minutes that there is such a thing as unpaid bills in the world. I made the only arrangement I could, of course, got them all to wait another month, though I felt tempted to ask them what earthly good they thought that would do them, unless some of this horrid mud turns to money, or some equally wild thing happens, I don't know how they are ever to get their pay. They always do, though, Ermina said thoughtfully. Father brings it about somehow. I know he does, after puzzling and twisting and borrowing, until he doesn't know which way to turn next. Such work as we have. I'm sick of living, Ermina. Well, said Ermina, you had better shut that damper, because the coal bill is increasing with every lump that falls, and I'm afraid you'll be sicker of living before it is paid. Come into the kitchen. Maria is baking cookies, and I presume it will be hot enough there for you to bake your foot if you want to. This Randolph family belonged to a representative class. 
I think when you have made their acquaintance, you will be on familiar terms with perhaps one-third of our American race. Families who live in well-appointed houses, with very neat and appropriate parlor furniture, somewhat the worse for wear, it is true, yet whose defects are skillfully concealed, families who are on terms of intimacy with half the neighborhood, who are invited to tea at Mrs. Harvey Smith's, who keeps a second girl and lives in serene indifference to her kitchen expenses, families who exchange bows with Mrs. B. Lawrence Livermore, who lives on Belton Avenue and hardly so much as knows that she has a kitchen attached to her house, yet these same families live in a state of perpetual unrest and unhappiness, their occupation a frantic stretch at the family purse, to make it meet the necessities, to say nothing of the comforts of life. Of this class were the Randolphs, people who sat down in utter despair on Saturday nights, who brooded over ways and means during all the long Sabbath day between faint efforts not to think their own thoughts, and those who rose up to the burden of life again on Monday morning with its problem all unsolved. Mr. Randolph was a merchant, at least he had been, one of the unfortunate, struggling, disappointed ones, borrowing of this friend to-day to meet the demands of yesterday's lender. With him there had hardly been a yesterday to look back upon when he was free and fearless of to-morrow's claims, not at least since he was a boy, and that he thought must have been a hundred years before. He commenced life too early, did Mr. Joseph Randolph, just as many a hot-headed young American will do after him. It had not always been thus with his family. They had not known of his struggles. Pity they had not. It is not entirely the fault of the women that they are, many of them, the helpless extravagant mortals that society has made them. The Randolph household had eaten and drank and slept and dressed in blissful indifference as to how the bills were paid. Economical they were to a certain extent, at least they thought so, though in these latter days they would have smiled over their former ideas of economy. They had never considered themselves wealthy, indeed they always spoke of themselves as poor, but a new dress apiece when they needed it, and fresh hats and bonnets when the seasons changed, and fresh gloves and ribbons and laces at their pleasure, this was economy. As for the butter and sugar and meat, those three awful whirlpools into which so much capital is sunken, Bridget, the maid of all work, attended to them, unmolested by any of the feminine heads of the household. Ermina was only sixteen when the change came, first a long, serious illness on the father's part, then months of invalidism for the mother, then Tom came home from college in disgrace and untold difficulty, requiring among other things much money to be raised, and suddenly it came to their knowledge what the father had known for a long time, that he could not pay that money nor any other. It was a very quietly managed matter. Mr. Randolph could not even fail on a great scale. The failure must be third-rate, as his business had always been. There was no red flag or immense sacrifice of goods, the family had not even the excitement of a great change outwardly to involve and interest them. Mr. Randolph merely slipped quietly and meekly from his position of master to that of subordinate. His principal creditor took the business entire, and the former owner as his clerk, at a fair enough salary for a clerk, 
but not one equal to supporting a family of seven. This, then, was the problem for the family brain, how to make a hundred dollars do five times as much as a hundred dollars will do, and have a surplus for incidentals. Unceasingly worked at it was, but not as yet solved. Mrs. Randolph helped feebly at it sometimes, but Mrs. Randolph had no head for figures, never had had, even when she was parlor boarder in Madame LeBlanc's seminary. When she said this, she always sighed. Mrs. Randolph was one of those unfortunate beings who had come down. Now that is a very difficult thing to do. You may talk of the impossibility of making a graceful ascent in the social scale, but unless you are a very remarkable woman, you will find a graceful descent at least equally difficult. Mrs. Randolph, for instance, had no real conception of what economy meant. In a general way, it meant to use as little point lace as could be reasonably got along with, and to buy no new jewelry for a while. But when one never bought point lace and jewelry, how were these rules to be reduced to practical use? To Mrs. Randolph, her daughters were absolute wonders. Nothing that had happened to her girlhood, sheltered as it was in the home of a New York millionaire, where she reigned an only daughter, could be used to help her household in their troubles. The millionaire indeed had gone to absolute ruin years ago, but not until he had carefully finished his daughter's education in the art of spending millions, and married her to a man who had no millions for her, which, by the way, is one of our American puzzles. Meantime, she looked on in helpless bewilderment, while the young ladies turned and darned and colored, remarking now and then in a helpless, dazed sort of way, "'There's my lavender silk, girls. It is trimmed with thread lace. You might do something with it. You do such wonderful things, all of you.' And Ermina would respond good-naturedly, "'Spare us that affliction, mother, I beg, in addition to all our other trials.' Don't send us up and down the earth in a frantic hunt after something that will do to wear with lavender silks and thread lace. The young ladies were very unlike in character. Whoever saw four young ladies, children of the same parentage though they be, who looked or acted alike in any but minor points. Helen was the nominal head of the party, being one of those persons who are prompt to express an opinion and act upon it, and who get the name of being quick in their conclusions, nothing generally being said about the amount of time they have to spend in repenting afterwards. So Helen did a good deal of the talking. She could do it well. She fretted a good deal about the state of things, was sorely tried over the rips in her gloves, yet mended them faithfully, and made them last just as long as possible, and made every one aware that she did when Helen sacrificed her own convenience, you were sure to know it. And as she was in a continual state of doing without things that she did not want, there was an uncomfortable sense of martyrdom about her. Ermina took things philosophically. The ragged glove fingers and faded ribbons and mended collars might try her soul as fully as they did Helen's, but it was natural for her to be gravely comical over them all. Surfacely, you would have supposed Ermina to be perfectly indifferent to existing troubles, that is, as a general thing. There came, however, to her horrible days when life was worse than leaden, absolutely black. 
Wretched days were these in the Randolph household, days to be remembered and shivered over. There was one comfort, they came rarely, and between their coming Ermina tugged at the family snarl and was good-natured over it. Grace was a little past seventeen, was the family beauty, had the name of being utterly thoughtless and light-hearted, was merry and bright, and the least bit hoydenish from morning to night, day after day, and week after week. It is a wonder, Helen said sometimes, that she didn't think a little. I am sure I had a great deal of thinking and planning to do at her age. But on the whole they seemed willing that Grace should do the laughing and merry-making, and let thinking alone, nor ever noticed that Grace's gloves had a way of lasting longer than other people's, at least she applied less often than the others for shillings from the carefully guarded fund, that the fashion of arranging her hair was changed whimsically often they were apt to discover. It required closer sight to find that when the brown hair ribbon was hopelessly soiled, a plain black velvet band became the style, and when the black velvet grew rusty, severe simplicity suddenly became her best, and her hair was combed back straight and plain without band or bow. Little sacrifices, very trifles in their way, nobody thought of noticing them. She herself did not name them sacrifices, but she was very steady about them, and if she had been one who ever did any thinking, they would have had the appearance of being premeditated and systematic. The other daughter was Maria. End of chapter 1